Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of The Mucky Middle. I'm Nick Hunter, co-founder and CEO of B Corp creative agency Paper Moose. In The Mucky Middle, I'll be chatting to industry leaders on navigating the balance between purpose and profit when building successful businesses. I'm thrilled to have co-founder of one of my very favorite breweries, Young Henry's, Oscar McMahon, on our very first episode. In this episode, we'll chat similarities between building a band and a brand, the challenges and benefits of designing a business from first principles, and what it means to have purpose at the heart of what you do. Let's jump right in. Tell me a little bit more about young Oscar. What, what, did, what did he want to be when he, when he grew up? Young Oscar was a skateboarder. I was really into tattoos and like sort of loud music, you know, like metal and punk and rock and roll. I, I lived in Forestville, but I went to Newtown High School. Oh, wow. Which was really... That's a bit of a trek. It was a bit of a trek, but it was, that was a really formative experience for me. Mm. Getting to choose which high school I went to, and I didn't really know which one I wanted to go to. And mum was like, there's this performing arts high school in, um, in Newtown. So uh, what, what's performing arts? And so anyway, I went and did this audition and managed to get a spot. That, so that was a really that was a really important thing for me. Probably if it hadn't have been for Young Henrys, though, I I think I would just be in like bars and pubs. Mm. I like I love I love hospitality. Yeah, I love it. My wife and I actually invested um, in a pub, the Unicorn, with the Marys guys and um, Elvis and Joe from Portenio back in the day. Yeah, we've had that pub now for seven years, I think. Mm. And hospitality makes me happy. I've got so many friends legitimate like lovely friends in the hospo industry it's fun it's creative brewing in hospo it's it has these sort of lovely experiential sides Mm, but it also it's very social it's giving people a good time it's got all the warm and fuzzies Mm. but there's also an element of fucking pirate ship to it anyone that's worked in a you know, late night pub or a late night nightclub. You know what it's like being part of a bar crew. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's it's fun. It's exciting. You get to meet so many people. You really get to the melting see pot as well. Total melting pot. Yeah. What was the idea behind Young Henry's that you know made you want to throw your life behind something like this? There are two parts to that. One is the seed, and two is something that happened that allowed me to be ready for that opportunity. I was playing in a band before the Young Henry's thing. We were doing pretty well. We were touring a lot, playing with a lot of international and uh, national acts, doing a lot of national touring. Um, And I was working in a pub, sort of just as casual work to pay the bills. But anyway, we were really hardworking band. We were rehearsing once or twice a week, plus band meetings. We had management. We had a record sort of deal. And then we got an opportunity to go and play South by Southwest in Austin in 2009 and we did a bit of an American tour. I'd started really getting into craft beer with like one of my best mates, Robbie, who was also the drummer in the band. When we went over to America, we drank a lot of Sierra Nevada and that was a really amazing thing. When we were over there, I had this realisation that the band wasn't going to make it and that probably music wasn't going to be my thing. And so came back from that tour... And instead of being on this high, I was actually really low. And it was kind of like I was grieving this realization that, shit, we're not going to make it. This isn't going to be my thing. Working in the pub, guy that lives around the corner, Richard, who was brewing for a beer company called Barron's, he was sort of thinking, oh, no, this, this I don't like where it's heading. I'm thinking of leaving. 
we connected over music because he used to play in a band as well. After Richard and I met and started talking about beers, we started this beer appreciation club, which was, you know, basically just a bunch of people getting drunk, tasting good beers from around the world. One night after beer club, Richard said something like, how cool would it be to create a beer company that's, you know, in touch with the people drinking the beer like beer club? It was like, oh yeah, that's a cool idea. We should do that. I actually called him back the next day. I was like, hey, you know what you're talking about last night? You know, are you serious? And so we sort of started going on down the road of working out, well, if we started a beer company, what would it be like? You know, it's denim, not suits. It's the Black Crows. It's not, you know, DJs. It's an old Holden. It's not a new Ferrari, all that sort of shit, you know. I was able to start directing all of my creativity towards this new thing. I'd never been in business before, but when you're in a band, you're making brand decisions every day. If if you're in a band of four people, you need everyone to believe in a song before it becomes a song. And that's that's the collaborative creative process in a business. 100%. You know, when you're playing in a band, it's very rare that you have to make decisions based on financial outcomes. So it's all about where your band plays and who your band plays with. Mm. But the other people that you put on the bill, that actually says something about you, might draw some more people and all of a sudden, you know, it's all about stepping, yeah. like the stepping stones of playing live. If you apply all of that thinking to a business, you know, you're in a really good place for making brand decisions. When we, when we launched, we wrote a list of 10 venues where we wanted our brand to be on tap and we went out and we approached them and I think we got seven it was seven or eight of the ten from working in pubs and playing in bands all of a sudden you know everyone in the early days your network is everything right I think still our network is everything and so you started being able to define you know what your brand is from where it showed up we also had this really lucky timing this is around the time where the small bar license came up bunch of small bars were like, yep, we, we're more akin to you than we are to, you know, your lines and your CVs. And a lot of the bigger publicans were wondering where their customers were going. And we've heard this a couple of times that they went in, into small bars and were like, I keep seeing this young Henry's around, what's the go? And so we actually got a few phone calls and people saying, well, look, you know, we're, we're interested to talk. I've seen your product around in these small bars. Would you, would you do it in a pub, you know? People really got behind it, really got into the idea. How many breweries were around at that time? When we entered the market, we believed there was somewhere between 150 and 180. It's now like 700 and something. So those early years, you, you had the indies and it was kind of word of mouth. What was that next gear shift? Scaling always has been and always will be the most difficult thing mm. in, I think, any business, but especially one that's capitally intensive like brewing. Right up until COVID, we were a growth business year on year. COVID sort of pulled the rug out as it did for so many businesses and people. But it's really nice that we've now just just ticked over the volume that we're at pre-pandemic. So we've gotten back to growth again, which is a really nice feeling. Kind of good to get that and I feel that headwind again. Yeah. Um, Was there something galvanizing within the team to go through COVID? I think we learned a lot in the first lockdown. The Probably the, the, the shining light of of the COVID experience was our company culture. Mm. I don't know if before that anyone would be able to put a, you know, dollar figure on company culture, but going through that and realizing that the only people that will ever rebuild your business with you are the people that are in it and the people that love it. Mm. And so the value of company culture is you actually still have a business. 
and we're actually now getting back to growth because people are like, yep, we're here. We're not going anywhere. We love it. We want, at the end of all of this shit, we want to work for Young Henry's again. For those listening at home, uh, we just did a, a shoot with Young Henry's and every, everyone on set, I was like, these are all really lovely people. And, and you don't always find that with every company, but it, it says something about your hiring. What is the secret sauce? Basically, we've got a team of team players. That's always our focus. We're not looking for one person who's a gun and then a bunch of bodies around it. It's like, no, no, no. Everyone has to be a team player. I find it really hard to actually, during the hiring process, really look for that. It's a very difficult thing, especially as a business grows, your needs change year on year. Our average tenure is actually quite high. The in- It's a really interesting dynamic that because... For someone to last a long time in a business, they need to grow with the business. Mm. Their skill set needs to improve at the same rate that the business is growing. And that's tiring. That's hard. Yeah. Not everyone can do that. And sometimes we'll see people grow to a point and just sort of cap out. Yeah. And that's that's okay, you know? Um, and then you've got this fresh invigoration of either younger people or newer people coming in with fresh ideas. Different experiences. You know, different experiences. Bring news of the outside world. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I think good good company culture is sort of like, you know, you need to be a bit of a conductor. Mm. And sometimes it is actually just sitting down and listening to all of the things that you've done wrong and, <laughs> and you know, all the ways that you've let an individual down or whatever it is because mm. you can't, you know, you can't have a full view on everyone's experience all the time. 100%. I mean, n- neither you or Rich had any business experience before starting Young Henry's, did you? Uh, Richard did. He did. Yeah, Richard had a little bit, but I had none. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you, you're, you've gone from a musician to, yeah, running a really successful business of 80 people. What were those big learning hurdles? The learning hurdles have been magnificent. <laughs> The thing that I think is probably most relevant in that experience is that up until the time that we started Young Henry's, I was an employee. Mm. So I walked out of being an employee into being an employer with a full view of what it's like to be an employee. Mm. We try to be as transparent as possible with people, with where the company's at, with what we're trying to do, Mm. getting that balance right is also difficult because as you know directors and business owners we are constantly shaking down around three different opportunities at any one time that probably will never go anywhere yeah i don't know what the strike rate is but i think about you know maybe five percent of what you investigate actually becomes apparent so there's a lot of stuff where you kind of don't want to give your team hypothetical burden you know yeah yeah so it, that can be a real... What's the thing that is actually useful to them in that moment? Because I, I think as business owners, we live with a lot of uncertainty. It, but it's also really funny that we've got a you know pretty big sales team. Sales teams are a really interesting thing because you need people to be on brand. Mm. You need them to be creative. You need them to be dogged. You need them to be able to create connections and be really sort of empathetic and good negotiators whilst also being able to cop nose on the chin multiple Mm. times a day. It's a really interesting sort of mindset. Uh, But the, the interesting thing is that even within that team, you will see people who need numbers to know how they're going and other people who are afraid of the numbers, they actually prefer, oh, do you know what? 
if I get too bogged down in the numbers, I actually get too worried about whether I'm doing, you know, they're more like a confidence sort of person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's difficult to, th- to understand how your management style should shift depending upon the person. And that's exactly it. And that's just within one department, right? And then when you zoom out our business, we've got a brew crew, we've got a lab, we've got a logistics team, we've got the sales team, we've got a marketing team, we've got an accounting team, we've got us dorks in head office, <laughs> um, we've got a bar team. Mm. Um, so you've got all of these really different, very disparate mindsets mm. um, within the business and then you've got di- disparate mindsets within these different teams. So how do you keep all of that cohesive? Mm. Really comes back to every time you hire, you need to hire based on really simple values. Yeah. Are they a good communicator? Are they a good person? Are they grounded? Because they're not things you can generally train for. I always think about it from a casting point of view. Is you know, You're casting, if you cast the film in a really bang on way, the thing will sort of direct itself. And, and I think it's the same with business in a lot of ways that hmm. if you cast your team in the right way, you have the right players um, with the right qualities, then it often just runs itself. Well, that's a really interesting point. And I guess in your world as well, you're seeing brands all the time doing creative things for brands. Hmm. If you create something that says a certain thing about a brand in the marketplace, but then you've got delivery drivers, salespeople, other people engaging in the marketplace and it's completely different Mm. to that narrative, that's a huge brand clash. And one one of the things that we've always sort of tried to do is that if you meet one of our salespeople on the road or you are a salesman and you are accepting beer from one of our delivery drivers and then you see a piece of content and then you go to um, you know a local footy match and there's a pop-up bar a pop-up young henry's bar on a saturday or sunday and then you pop into our tasting bar we want all of those experiences and interactions to be somewhat equal mm. and somewhat have a continuum Yeah, the essence of young Henry should always be there. Yeah, that's right. If you apply your brand rhetoric everywhere from your hiring policy to a pop-up bar, Mm. to a piece of creative, to, you know, what what your next big step is, Mm. you start building a a much better sort of brand experience for your customers. Mm. Yeah, it's an evolving thing. But Mm. if you know what that core is, then you can flex around that. Also, it's, it's a funny thing that when someone says... If someone says to us, oh, Young Henry's, yeah, we, I love your brand. What are they talking about? Mm. Are they talking about a poster in a bottle shop? Are they talking about a beer that they've had at the pub? Are they talking about a decal, a decal an activation, a piece of content? Like it, it could mean so many different things. Mm. Um, and it means all of those things. Mm. So it's a, it's a really – sometimes when, when someone says, oh, I love your brand, I, I, I'm – not trying to catch them out like, 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 oh, that's a nice band T-shirt. Name three songs. <laughs> it's not that, but I am always really interested. Like, okay, cool. What does that mean to you? What, what, yeah, what does it mean to you? What are you referring to? Like, what, what are the bits that we're doing right? Because a know? brand is an ecosystem of so many different pieces. And that's it. Do, do you find that the big, like your lions and your CBs are often trying to copy elements of it or trying to recreate it? Or is that just too hard? 
I think that we are a brand that could only have been created in independence mm. because the sign-off process <laughs> would just never have allowed so much of our activity. Mm. You know, we were just like, hey, we, especially in the first five years, we're like, that sounds cool. Do you want to do it? Let's do it. When is it? It's two weeks away. Fuck. Okay, let's do it. We defined our brand in our independence and mm. in our sort of um, naivety in many ways. You guys are very authentic in everything that you do because the brand is the core team and you live and breathe your values. People, people are savvy consumers as well. You know, we're not selling to 100% of Australians. We are selling to less than 1%. You know, if if we talk about total beer volume, craft beer as a percentage of total volume in Australia is 10%. We're not even 1% of that, right? So, yeah, you know, we, we are talking about a really small subsect of people. The people who drink Young Henry's, it is an interesting, it's a progressive mindset. It is open-minded and we are not their only brand for sure. They would absolutely be trying other things that we'd be part of their... Um, Beer choice ecosystem. Yeah, exactly. You know, And so the beauty of that is that we know that those consumers are actually quite knowledgeable. We know that they're progressive in their choices. I heard this thing recently in a bottle shop, which was so great. <laughs> I walked in. I didn't know the, the guy who was in, like, working in the bottle shop. And there was this guy next to me who was looking in the fridge. And the guy in the bottle shop walked up and said, oh, um, hey, can I help you to this other guy? He said, oh, look, just I'm looking for a couple of, um, couple of beers, you know. And he said, oh, look, you know, Young Henry's Newtowner is actually our top selling beer in this bottle shop. Like, heaps of people love it. And he goes, no, nah, that's my pub beer. I'm looking for something different today. <laughs> and I was like, that's awesome. When I go to the pub, I drink Young Henry's Newtowner. That's yeah. cool. But I'm going to flirt with something else tonight. I'm, I'm going to flirt with something else. Tonight. And I, I was just like, wow, that's really interesting. That's, that was a really great sort of fly on the wall mm. experience. And that's probably what our, a lot of our consumers are like. You look back and kind of just pinch yourself a little bit sometimes? Massively. Yeah. Massively. Because there's not that many breweries that have cracked the amount of sales that you guys do. There aren't many, um, you know, like your Stone and Woods and your Bolters. Mm. How much do you put down on, I guess, like, like do you believe in luck? Like what, what is, what is the, the mix uh, or is it just pure grift? It is... 50% hard work and 50% a lot luck, I think. Use Stone and Wood and Bolter as two really good examples of the liquid is great and they have they position their brand in a certain spot that is not too close to anyone else. Mm. I think that you can say the same thing about Young Henry's. We're not trying to be Bolter. We're not trying to be Stone and Wood. We're trying to be Young Henry's. If you just focus on what you're doing and you make decisions based off your own internal metrics instead of trying to jump around in the marketplace too much. You can kind of create your own white space. Dan, my business partner and I, we've actually sort of worked out that there are five key things that a brewery needs to actually go the distance and mm. crack over. You want, you want to tell us what those five things are? No, right? no. Proprietary, uh, proprietary information? Yeah, it's kind yeah. of, <laughs> once we kind of worked, once we kind of worked, worked it out, you start being able to look at some of your competitors and go, okay, they're not going to be a threat. And there's also, we've got to make sure that we 
keep holding on to the five things as well. But what about just the sustainability side of Young Henry's? You, we're talking about choice for consumers and that kind of thing. When did that become an important part? From the very beginning. Our first vessels were returnable growlers. Our whole original business model was based around kegs to pubs and reusable bottles instead of recyclable. Amazing. Um, and so that was, the, that was how we entered the market. We even tried to mm. have a growler return system um, with bars mm. where we'd be dropping off freshly filled growlers and people were buying them and drinking them like a jug and then we'd pick them up and wash them and refill them. And um, we actually invested, we created and invested a, um, a growler filling system as well that was called Growler Depot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we put one into the Marley bottle shop which was actually this huge big system that had chilled kegs behind it. You needed to have a cool room, all this stuff. But you actually walked in and it would clean your growler and would fill it and you could choose which beer. How long did that last? A year or two. Having a bit of a lens, like we're, we're a production facility. Mm. We're a production business, you know. We apply sustainability wherever we can because we feel we need to. If you're creating something in the world, you need to balance that out. You need to take responsibility for your you know, for what you're making and the damage you're potentially causing. Being a, you know, then very small brewery in Newtown, our customers really gave a shit about that. Mm. That just reinforced that part of our thinking. And so when we had to upgrade our brewery, we put in a high efficiency brewing system to use less grain, less water, less power, et cetera, et cetera. Um, You know, when we met the people from Pingala, which is a solar cooperative, we were the first, you know, community-owned solar project in New South Wales where they put a big solar farm on our roof. Then when we met the people from UTS talking about microalgae and its ability to ingest CO2, you know, yeah. decarbonize. Yeah, tell us a little bit more about the algae project. Basically, we've been a part of a research project with the University of Technology Sydney for five years. It's getting to a point now where we're about to commercialize it. Essentially, it's a decarbonization project where... By using microalgae, we can decarbonize the brewing industry, as in we can stop brewers needing to buy CO2 and release CO2. We can turn a brewery into an oxygen-emitting business, and then that algae, when fed to livestock at a very small percentage of its diet, it can lower the methane emissions of cattle. It's a sort of circular economic double industry play. What's really exciting about it is that we could use an industry like the brewing industry, which is usually set in urban environments, we can create oxygen-producing businesses in urban environments. Mm. Microalgae is a significant contributor to oxygen. Mm. You know, half of the world's oxygen comes from micro or macroalgae, you know, seaweed, kelp, you know, nori, spirulina, etc. You can have one industry that stops making CO2 and emitting CO2, it becomes an oxygen-emitting industry that can then have a waste product that helps to lower the methane emissions of a completely different industry. So I can have my steak and drink my beer. Absolutely. And, you know, methane from livestock is the third largest contributor to greenhouse gas and, you know, uh, global warming. And people's relationship with, you know, beef is not going in the direction that it needs to in the, at the speed yeah, yeah. that it needs to. So we actually do need to find ways of helping that industry. How long has it been going on for? 
uh, for five years. So we've been funding research for four years, but it took a year to a year of um, toing and froing to get to a point where the research started. Mm. Meat and Livestock Australia have come on as a contributing partner now, and we're actually starting to go around, starting to have conversations with people about funding it. By the end of this calendar year, it'll be its own standalone business, which is really exciting. All of these purpose-driven initiatives, how much do you think that drives the the customer's choice in Young Henry's? I think it is part of a reason of why people are okay to keep buying it. I don't think sustainability can be your only, it can't be your your only thing. And also your brand still has to have all of these other things. Mm, Brand needs to have more strings to its bow. But I think that, you know, the Young Henry's and like craft beer consumer, absolutely progressive inner city mainly and give a shit about environmentalism. Do you find it has a big impact internally for the employees? Massively. Yeah. Yeah. Our crew really give a shit about it. It's something that they are all very proud of. You know, we've got these glowing green tanks of algae in our brewery um, and it's a bit of an oddity and, you know, there is a bit of oddness to Young Henry's. It's good to be a little bit odd. Yeah, you know. Like we've got a bunch of really sciencey, nerdy awesome people in our business that really geek out on the you know <laughs> these on, green vats on the science of it yeah, yeah. it's yeah. really cool uh, serve so the people where did that come from we still it like it is the last footnote in our brand values and it is not defined mm. we do not actively define it within our company mm. but everyone knows how to use it mm. it's a reminder we are only successful if we are actively serving the people. But also, as business owners, we've got to serve our people, make mm-hmm. sure that they're happy. What I love about it as well is just the humble nature of it, mm. to serve. Mm. We are connected to the hospitality industry. We are connected to the people that are just giving people their afternoon beer or their you know, their Father's Day beer or, you know, their their weekend, you know, night out with the girls, whatever it is. It's so funny. We meet so many people and they're like, oh, so the people, I love that. And everyone has a slightly different take on what it mm-hmm. is. And so many people are like, oh, you should put that everywhere. There should be more. And it's like, and we've never really pushed pushed it to the front. It's yeah. always just been- It's been there. It's just been there. And, you know, it's an undercurrent. What kind of advice would you give to young young Oscar, you know, 20, 20 years back? Do you know what? It's funny. I've had a really reflective last year or two. Mm-hmm going through some some sort of big emotions. I think maybe that was a little bit out of the back of COVID. I think it could also just be around the turning 40 and all of that you know, big life shift. One thing I'm trying to do is be more compassionate towards the mistakes I made as a young person. The long-term thinking part of my brain probably only formed when I was about 35. <laughs> Even though I'm a very different person now, to who I was back then, I think that there's a definite throughput. I kind of probably wouldn't actually tell myself anything because yeah, just go. We we learn more from our mistakes. I think maybe a couple of like simple things would have been, you know, like, hey, appreciate this person more. Appreciate your parents more. You yeah. know, it'd be just small human shit like that. Yeah, like, yeah. hey, when you go out on this particular night, be less of a dickhead. Like, <laughs> just Take things. a bit more time. Yeah, yeah. Hey, maybe person. don't drink so much on this yeah. particular <laughs> evening. And, and who knows? You know, maybe there was a sliding doors moment in, in one of those mistakes that created much better decisions later down the track. You only get better at coping with adversity 
by dealing with adversity. Yeah, 100%. (laughs) Yeah, if you live in a bubble, then how are you possibly ever going to deal with that stuff in the future? It's a really interesting thing. Um, I was having a chat with someone recently and they're a business owner and they have had the first three years, everything has just gone right. Gone right, it's gone right, it's gone right, and it's so awesome. And they're they're flying. It's it's great. But then <laughs> they were saying, "Well, look, but we're having this one little issue." And I could see mm-hmm. that it was really like perplexing. It's like, oh, right, right. You haven't had to deal with a lot of fuck ups yet. Looking back, we had so much natural organic growth in the first few years mm. that it just felt like everything was just like landing, 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 and then you know, you get your first big fuck up and takes your breath away yeah how do you deal with stress i've got a few different few different things how i dealt with stress in the first five years was not healthy also our schedules weren't healthy our work-life balance wasn't healthy my alcohol intake wasn't healthy just like everything you know um we were just stressed to the max the whole time first two or three years we were doing 90 hour weeks Mm. While also keeping the bar job, or the first the first year, I was still working in yeah. a bar at night as yeah. well. Yeah, these days I don't check emails when I'm at home. Mm. I don't answer my phone when I'm at home. In fact, when I get home, I put my phone on silent and I put it upside down so I can't see it ringing. Mm. I exercise every morning, and that is not a rigorous exercise. I am, you know, I'll go for a walk. Go for a swim, do something, you know, just do something, be be active. Get the blood flying. Yeah. And I think also just talking to like my business partner, Dan, I talk to him about how I'm feeling. He talks to me about how he's feeling. And we yeah. allow each other to say, yeah, fuck, I'm stressed at the moment. I'm in the middle of this. Yeah. And because we both look after sort of slightly different parts of the business, sometimes it's like, hey, can I take something off your plate? Mm. Or do you need to take a day tomorrow? Or, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you got each other's backs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you're a business owner, you shouldn't be the first in and the last to leave because everyone else is just going to try and mimic that, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're going to have a whole team of people burning out. Yeah. You know, productivity comes from happy people, not from people doing seventy hours. Like those first five years, I I wasn't setting the the right example mm. i was setting like we, we were setting a good work ethic mm. no one no one could have said we weren't fucking dedicated yeah, yeah, yeah. and our work ethic is still super strong you don't want someone to become just a work person mm. it can be hard to remember that if you've got 80 people in a business you know you've also got 80 partners of people in a business you might have 120 children within mm-hmm. that business like the flow on is a lot more than just those 80 people. Mm. What's the key thing that people don't actually consider when going, oh, let's start a business? Fear is not a reason to not do something. Having a little bit of, little bit of fear in your gut sometimes can be the, the telltale sign that, hey, there's risk here, but when there's risk, there can be reward. Mm. I once heard an investor talking and saying, <laughs> never get into business with anyone that doesn't have an exit strategy. But also, if someone's starting a business and they're talking about their exit strategy, don't get into business with that person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I think is like, it's, it's so confounding. When you're starting a business, 
you are getting into something that you actually don't know when you're going to get out of it, mm. you know? Um, so you've got to be sort of really aware that you might be in this thing and while, you know, you're starting this business and it's all like, you know, we're doing this, eventually it's going to be holding on to you um, and you're not going to have the same freedom as, you know, you may not get paid the same as if you just do what you're good at and work for someone else. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, after five years, you can say, you know what, actually, I'm, I'm done here. I'm going to go and get a job over here. Mm. You know, maybe it's earn some more much. money or, yeah. whatever, you know, like after five years in business, you may be earning less money than you were. Mm. You might, you know, be stuck with shareholders. You might, you know, all these things. It is, it is so much more risky. It takes so much more from you. Um, and I think probably you're either an entrepreneur or you're not. Mm. And so if anyone's listening to this, they're probably like, no, I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Because that's their mindset. Or, oh, shit, I don't think that's for me. And that's that's the other personality type. And Mm. both of those are totally okay, Mm. you know. Um, Some people are afraid of heights, so don't go skydiving, Mm. you know. that's It's just that simple, I think. Awesome, Oscar. Well, thank you so much for having a chat with me in at Paper Moose HQ. In the bunker. In the thank bunker. you very much for having me, Nick. Yeah, thanks, man. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the very first episode of The Mucky Middle. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed having the conversation. If you did, please drop us a review on iTunes or wherever you happen to be listening. We will see you next month for another episode, but in the meantime, we hope you will keep walking that fine line between profit and our planet. Thanks. The Mucky Middle is a Paper Moose production. Music and sound mix by Caleb Jacobs.